Well, good morning, church. And I don't know if you're like me, but uh, the whole idea of heroes, the idea of there being some struggle, some risk, blazing a new trail, the idea of adventure just totally thrills me. So our series in Heroes, uh, I've just totally enjoyed it. And then thinking about this morning, we're going back into the book of Judges. If you remember, two weeks ago, we were in the book of Judges. We were looking at the life of Gideon. Do you remember? Just a frail and weak man who God called to go up against the Midianites who were oppressing Israel. Now, the interesting thing about the book of Judges is that it was a time in the life of Israel where the scripture actually says itself that they just... uh, completely gave over to their own heart, their own ways. They were living in rebellion to God, if you would. And they did what they felt was right in their own eyes. The the priests of Israel at that time were somewhat silent. The people were wayward. And so at the times that they went out from God's protection and his blessing and his provision, what would happen is there would be a consequence in regards to those that were living in the region of Canaan their enemies would come in and either raid or oppress them. And so we're going to fast forward in the book of Judges to a time a little bit later after Gideon, uh, and there was a judge or a savior, if you would, someone who God raised up to allow uh, the people of Israel to be free. So that, that leader this time was Ehud, and he won victory for Israel, and they had a time of 80 years of peace. 80 years of peace while Ehud reigned, and he was the judge or leader of Israel at that time. But as would happen, Ehud passed on, and the people again went out from God's provision and blessing. So we have this cycle in the book of Judges. And the reason they went out from God's protection and blessing is because they weren't transformed in their spirit and their being. They were, if you would, checking off their little church list, okay? They did all the outward actions, but there was no inner transformation. Their hearts weren't changed. So we have here this this new situation. So a king in the land of Canaan named Jabin, he began to oppress Israel. And it says so much so, he cruelly oppressed them for 20 years until they finally cried out for relief. You know, when I saw that, finally cried out for relief, right? 20 years. Why is it that we tolerate living below what God has promised us? Why is it that we tolerate that? Why do we become so comfortable with what the enemy serves up for us? And then my second observation here is why is it that our God so many times is our last option? Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I find myself saying, oh my gosh, I... I didn't even pray about that. I didn't even seek God about that. I'm toiling this about this. I'm, I'm doing it in my own devices, my own wisdom, and I haven't even sought God on it. Why is it that our God so many times is our last option? Well, this saddens me about mankind. What I do love is this about God, written in Isaiah 65:24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So while there's no spiritual leadership from the priesthood at this time in the land of Israel, they're far off in the hillside of Ephraim, and there's silence, no leadership at all from them. God provides for Israel liberty. As soon as they cry out, God has already had a plan ready in action. But his 
His pathway for this liberty comes in a most unexpected way through a leader that was in their midst, a woman named Deborah. Now, before I move on, I want to encourage you all this morning with this thought. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. Isaiah 65, 24. Help is on the way. If you're at the point of trusting and seeking his provision for a need, rather than leaning on your own problem-solving skills, if you are finally at the point where you are sick of it, like Israel, and you truly want God to strengthen you, give you wisdom, give you the provision that is needed, let me tell you, help is on the way. Can you say it with me? Help is on the way. Absolutely. God is waiting. He is ready and able. So we see the first thing about Deborah in Judges 4.4 is that Deborah is a prophetess. The wife of Lapidus was leading Israel at that time or judging, leading and judging the equivalent of each other. So let's explore a little bit what God wants us to understand about this woman, Deborah. The first thing is she's a prophetess. She's designated as an authorized spokesperson for God. When God spoke to a prophet, they had no choice but to deliver that word to those whom God directed it. They were appointed by God to be God's mouthpiece. The first thing God wants us to know about this hero is her spiritual character. It's through the inner strength of her spiritual connection and intimacy with God that she fulfills what it is that she's to accomplish. So we see that in God's estimation, it doesn't matter what we do or how much we have, whether it's our social status or our level of education, our accomplishments, our bank account. What matters to God is our intimate spiritual connection with him to be and to become with him and then to do from that state of being, to do what he desires us to accomplish. And what was it that Deborah did? Well, she was a leader or a judge. Being a judge traced back to the time, do you remember this, Moses chapter 18, when he was overwhelmed with the concerns of the people and, and the civil needs of the people and so forth, and his uh, father-in-law came to him and said, hey, you're going to burn out, Moses. You need to appoint people to assist you to resolve these conflicts for the people. And Moses did likewise. So a leader or judge was the outflow of that throughout history. And uh, from that time in Exodus 18, their practice was to seek guidance from God through prayer and meditation before making a ruling. Boy, that's some uh, good wisdom for today, huh? Before we make a decision, maybe pray about it and meditate a little bit and see what God thinks about it, right? Well, Deborah corrected abuses and addressed grievances by the direct inspiration of God. Her position, her calling, her contribution to Israel was a direct outpouring from her spiritual connection with God. So now here's the amazing thing. God honored her as a leader within a male-dominated society and as dull as the people of Israel were in regards to their spiritual walk, the people submitted to her leadership. And why is that? I believe they embraced her due to her great wisdom and her effectiveness. They recognized God's blessing over her and that she operated with his authority and approval on her life. And therefore, Israel 
went counterculture. They embraced her. She was a woman held in high esteem. So our first point for this morning is something to think about in regards to being God's hero. God's heroes are not defined by the culture or their circumstances, but rather they're conformed to their calling. Deborah was a woman who lived outside the box. She didn't allow the culture or the opinions of others to define her. Do you hear that? Not the opinions of others or what her culture says she can or cannot do. Nor did she allow any sense of personal inadequacy to define her. Listen to me here, church. So often, we know we have an enemy, right, in the world. We know Satan wants to still kill and destroy anyone who wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But many times I feel we're our own worst enemy. Through our own lack of confidence or, or a sense of personal inadequacy, you know, we do the devil's work for him, don't we? We sabotage ourselves, don't we? We take ourselves out of the game. Well, when that happens, what we do is we not only sabotage God's plans for us, but God's plans to use us and effectively touch the lives of others. See, I don't see Deborah saying here, you know what, God, I love you and I want to serve you, but, you know, how could I judge? Uh, you picked the wrong person. Only men can do that. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm adequate. And, and besides, what will other people think and what will they say? No, what I see in the scripture here in Judges 4 is a confident woman taking her place right under the palm of Deborah, as it was called. And she sat there as the people of Israel came and she sought God in confidence, knowing her role and giving verdicts for the people so that they can live in peace. She knew who she was and as pastor always says, she knew whose she was, right? Deborah sets an example for us to allow God's estimation of us as well as our calling to be that which we are conformed to. Conform, that word means to comply with rules, standards, or laws. It's generic. It can be good or evil. So how do we want to be conformed? Do we want to be conformed to God's standards or the world's? Remember, Pastor always talks about the little kingdom and the big kingdom, right? And the struggle and the tension between the two. And we have a choice every day to decide what we will be conformed by. You know, there's a New Testament scripture that this Old Testament woman so beautifully depicts. It's Romans 12, 2 to 3. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, and only then, will you be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Deborah embraced God's calling on her life to be a prophetess and a judge to be counterculture, if you would, because she would not allow herself or others to limit her capabilities. And because of that, she could, as a judge, test and approve God's will, not only for herself, but for the people as their judge. So we see the scripture beautifully being played out in Deborah's life. But the story gets better. God enacts his plans to liberate the people of Israel from King Jabin, one of the kings, neighboring kings, in the land of Canaan. Now, King Jabin had 
a commanding general of his army, Caesarea, and he will enter our story momentarily. For we will see in Judges here, it says, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Well, one thing's obvious here. Our first observation is that while Deborah is the weaker vessel physically, she most definitely is the stronger vessel in her faith and her spiritual walk. All right, now are there any husbands in the house who are getting elbowed right about now? But wait, before we start ragging on Barak, okay, for his lack of faith, I think there's a few things that we need to know. Is because Barak knew well of King Jabin and he also knew a lot about Caesarea. You see, he knew that Israel had no army, as it were, at that moment, and that God was actually calling Barak to gather a foot army, 10,000 men by himself. Okay, and if that wasn't a big enough feat to accomplish, he also knew that his enemy, Caesarea, already had a massive organized army. But the text reveals to us a threat of great magnitude. You see, in addition to Caesarea's army, he had at his disposal 900 iron chariots that were equipped with scythes. Now, scythes, I have a picture up, the, uh, up there for you of them. They were typically about three feet long. They were curved iron blades that were attached to each wheel of the chariot. Sometimes there were four blades and then they were attached to each side of the chariot. And they would take these chariots drawn by strong horses down through the valley where the battle was taking place and they would desecrate the foot soldiers. Can you imagine the bloodbath that occurred? They would just slice and dice them through the valley. So I want us to consider a few things that we can at least admire of this very courageous man. I think his request reflects his high esteem of Deborah's calling as a prophetess. First of all, remember, this is a woman leading Israel. This is so countercultural. But he has a great respect for this woman. She's God's prophet. And I think he was, he too, like her, was willing to think out of the box. And he was willing to be counterculture. And he was desiring to team up with Deborah beside him because I think he thought it would be very wise for him to go to the specific tribes with God's prophet to be able to rally those 10,000 men to battle, first of all. Can you imagine? I mean, if you and I were to go, we'd, I think, I'm sure the first thing we'd think is how will they know that I truly am telling the truth, that this is God's will, that this is what we're to do, to go against insurmountable odds against Caesarea's army. No way. But I think he thought, if I had Deborah by my side, they could hear for themselves God's voice. And also with Deborah beside him, in the battle, he would have direct access to God through her. You see, Old Testament is very different from New Testament times in regards to God's working in and through his people. 
In Old Testament times, since this is before the time of Christ, before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and before the time that Christ sent the Holy Spirit to us to abide and dwell, God dealt differently with people that followed him in Old Testament times. The Holy Spirit would come upon people for a task or something that they were called to do or to say to others. So the Holy Spirit would come upon them for that task, but then the Holy Spirit would go away. The Holy Spirit would come back to empower people for those specific tasks. I'll give you an example. Do you remember King Saul when he was leading Israel? I remember David was coming up through the ranks and God had ordained him to be the next king. And then there was jealousy and there was tension with Saul toward David. Remember that? And he was so uh, stuck with his envy and, and his his hate and, and he wanted to kill David. He was so uh, wrapped up in all of that that he didn't even realize that it says the Spirit of God had departed from him. The anointing, the power for the task had already left him. Well, you see, that was happening in this time. The Spirit of God was upon Deborah, and I think Barak knew that if she was with him, he would have access to God. But see, it's different for you and I. Do you realize that we have access to God from the Holy Spirit 24-7? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the latter half, actually says that anointing of God gives us access to the very, listen to this, thoughts of God and mind of Christ. Wow. Isn't that amazing? We have access through the Holy Spirit to the thoughts of God and the mind of Christ anytime. But Barak knew that he was lacking in some way, or at least his estimation of himself was that he was lacking in some way. So he asked her to come. And there's another thing, though, we can admire about Barak. He was humble enough to ask for what he needed. He never blamed God or said that God made a mistake. He was only keenly aware of his need and here's the big deal about this. He wasn't ashamed to voice it. So I got to hand it to Barack. He was keenly aware of a need. He voiced it. He asked her. And what was her response? Certainly, I will go with you. Wow. Courageous woman. But you know what? Better yet, I think a courageous man who was humble enough to ask you know, he didn't say, well, let me rethink this. I'm not sure. You know, Deborah said here, certainly she will go, but because of the course you are taking, she told Barak, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. And upon hearing that, I don't see him shirk. I don't see him say, oh, now let's rethink this. We can't possibly have the glory going to a woman. This is a man-made society here. No. You know what I love about Barack? He cares more about the outcome than the glory. He cares more about the outcome than the glory. That's true humility. So he goes off and he gathers the army of God, having the confidence that Deborah will be by his side. Here's the next point. God's heroes are not defined by their weaknesses or their failures, but in humility they ask for what they need. Time and time again, we see it in the Bible, great heroes of the faith that have experienced personal failure and the scriptures have made us privy to their character flaws as well. But yet, 
every time, the true heroes of God, they choose not to be self-focused, but kingdom-minded instead. You see, we feel uncomfortable asking for others' assistance, don't we? For fear, perhaps, that we're not properly being self-reliant, or simple pride is often at the root of our reluctance to ask for help. We don't like admitting we need help and are insufficient to solve a problem on our own. We feel vulnerable, right? So if we even get to the point where we can swallow our pride and acknowledge our need for help, the fear of rejection may hold us back from asking for, for it, or perhaps even shyness or the experience of past rejections. We may incline, the past rejections may incline us to expect a negative response when in reality, it's unlikely. And even if we don't expect to be turned down, we may still fear being a burden on someone else. So this imposition, this imposing on others keeps us from humbling asking for our needs. You know, Moses expressed his need to God and God sent Aaron, right? David cried out to God for companionship and comfort when he was in exile in the desert. Not only did God personally comfort him, but God sent 10 mighty men his way to bring him comfort and support him. Ruth needed Naomi and she wasn't ashamed to declare her allegiance to her. You know, this is a scripture I think we need to remember this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You know, I think there's a, a parallel here. Just as God was waiting in the wings for 20 years to help Israel, but they were too prideful to ask, too prideful to cry out. You know, I think it's, it's so wonderful that we can see Barak in the heat of the moment assessing what God was asking him to do. And he has an uncanny connection with his inner being, understanding there's something that he needs and he asks for it. And Deborah was there for Barak. Certainly, I will go. There was only a need of request on Israel's part and Barak's part. Seeking someone's help, whether it is God's help or the help of another that you need, it's often a win-win situation. Here we see two servants' hearts teaming up to answer God's call. With her brains and his bronze, they would effectively deliver Israel. There was nothing they wouldn't be able to do together. And I want you to remember that today. You know, we don't do family and relationships. And when I say family, I'm talking about church family here. We don't do it like the world. We do relationships differently. If we have a need in the body of Christ, we need to pray and we need to reach out to whoever God is saying go and speak to them. If we, have, we need help with mentoring, maybe spiritual mentoring, maybe we need help with mentoring about finances or, or certain things. You know what? We're, we're not all the, the sharpest tool in the shed, you know? We need some help sometimes. And the greatest thing is when we can reach out to one another, God can use that in a profound way, as we will see here, to defeat the enemy's schemes in our life. So I say put away the oppression. I say start doing it God's way. Call out for help, whether it be God or others, and watch God work. So Barak goes out in faith, and he gathers that 10,000-man army. And Caesarea, Jabin's commanding, General sees that Israel is rallying the troops 
and he summons his great army along with those 900 iron chariots. And we see in the next scripture here that it says that Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harash Hogoyim, and all Caesarea's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Caesarea, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. You see, in chapter 5, if we, le we read a little bit forward, we come to understand that, that apparently in a very dry season of the year when these armies were coming together to clash, God switched up the weather and a storm came and flooded the Kishon Valley or the river which sent Caesarea's army and chariots in complete disorder and perhaps even allowing the chariots to get stuck in the thick mud and preventing them from being of any benefit and giving reason for Caesarea to flee on foot. So in comes our third hero of the day. Her name's Jael, but she's not quite a hero when we meet her. The wife of Heber the Kenite. The Kenites were distant relatives of Moses. And it appears that with this conflict and this 20 years of oppression between Israel and the king, Jabin, that the Kenites had found some type of neutral ground where they didn't get into the conflict and into the mix, and they were just arm's distance away, you see. And so in comes Jael, and we find her in this neutral place, or so she thinks anyway. But God had it that Caesarea, as he was fleeing on foot, he recognizes the tents of the Kenites, and he's thinking, this is safe shelter. He runs to Jael's tent for refuge. She offers him some hospitality, but right before he falls asleep from sheer exhaustion, he says something to her. He says, stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is there anyone in there, say no. Well, I'm sure she's thinking that was an odd request. What's going on here? I think it was this request that made Jael wise to Caesarea's situation. For certainly she had seen that Israel was gathering their army. And I think she deduced from his comments that most likely the army of Israel had been victorious and Barak had, I'm sorry, Caesarea was fleeing for his life. So Jael's mind must have been whirling with thoughts as Caesarea fell down from exhaustion and slept. What to do? What to do? Well, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you remember last week's message from Pastor where he said, Remember the, the uh, people were watching Ezekiel on the mountain and they said, he said, hey, if Baal be God, remember that, serve him. But if Jehovah's God, serve him. And I think, hey, JL, if Baal is God, serve him, girl. But if Jehovah's God, you better pick up that hammer and that tent peg right now. Those of you that know the story know what's coming, right? Okay. <laughs> Well, indeed, she did. J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly 
to him, Caesarea, while he lay fast asleep exhausted. She drove that tent peg through his temple in the ground, and he died. Wow, what a gal. That brings me <laughs> to our next point. Husbands, you have no clue what your wives are capable of. If mama ain't happy, you better keep on running no matter how tired you are, right? No, here's our real point. God's heroes turn from ambivalence to action. God's true heroes, when they're pushed into a corner, always turn from ambivalence to action. You see, God not only saved Israel from Caesarea that day, but let me tell you, he saved Jael from her ambivalence. And perhaps God has got you in a corner of conflict. You're seeking some neutral ground. Is it a relationship? Is it a conflict at work? Is it an inner conflict that you're having with God and the enemy's tugging at you? I don't know what it is. But let me tell you, when God pushes us into a corner, a true hero of God will take a stand. I wonder for JL if she began to remember the words of her ancestor Moses way back then in her roots. Moses told the people of Israel before they entered this very land of all this conflict that we're hearing about in Judges, he said, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. You know, the fact is, church, there is no neutral ground. God says that we're either for him or against him. We may feel like we're at neutral ground, but we aren't. And it will be exposed sooner or later. So true heroes do take a stand. So Caesarea fell at the hands of a woman that day, just as, as God had prophesied through Deborah would occur. And for him to die that way was a huge disgrace and humiliation. But you know, in God's economies, heroes turn the world's standards upside down. Caesarea and his army, think about them, they represent the world and the world's values, and the world's power, and control, and pride, and let me tell you, misplaced confidence. You see, do you remember the scripture? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, right? Just like Caesarea. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God, don't we, church? You see, the irony is that he thought, Caesarea, he would destroy a nation with his strength, with his iron chariots, but a common housewife took him down with an iron peg, right? And that's the irony, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> a woman prophetess. Okay, I'm having a little fun. All right. A woman prophetess and judge in a man's world keeps civil order over a wayward nation and heralds the call that leads them to war. I mean, is this upside down or what? A common man aware of his inadequacy, raises a ragtag volunteer army that defeats a tyrannical leader. 
upside down. That's God's provision and his power for his people. But it so well depicts 1 Corinthians 1.27. God chose and still chooses the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Hope Church, let God's calling conform you, not the culture or your circumstances. Let faith take you out of the box. You know, I wish I had more time to tell you about how many times God has taken me to the edge of a cliff and just said, jump off, baby girl. You know enough about me. Jump off and watch me work. And he has been faithful every time. Don't let your character flaws or your failures define you. We all have them. Don't let them rule over us, over us, but let your greatest character be the character of humility like Barak, to seek help from God, to seek help from others, and overcome those character flaws or those failures. We need each other. I mean, zoom out. Take a big, wide picture of this Judges chapter 4. I love this piece of history because you know what? It took three courageous heroes to step up and defeat God's army. And I love it that we see men and women working together. I think we see a New Testament version of what was to be in God's economy. It wasn't be, to be a male hierarchy. It was to be exactly what the New Testament says. Neither fail, male nor female, but that we are one in Christ. Right, church? Working together with our various gifts and blessing God and others. So, bottom line, be crazy foolish for God. 1 Corinthians 1.27, be crazy foolish for God. Be a game changer. Think out of the box. Do not confine yourself. Allow God's spirit to move in you and allow him to use you in profound ways. Don't limit God and his ability to use you. Be a game changer. Take him at his word and expect the spectacular, right? Well, last thought in closing, men, remember JL, and I would suggest you take mama to lunch today, okay? <laughs> Pray with me, church. Dear Father, God, I thank you so much that you see raw potential in us many times things that we can't see ourselves. God, by your Holy Spirit, I pray you open our eyes to wonderful and magnanimous and, and powerful things that you want to do in and through us, Lord. Father, I pray that we would not be limited by the enemy's schemes, his oppression, by our culture, by our circumstances, but God, we would be conformed to your calling. And Lord, when we do that, may we see your power and might rule and reign in us and in our church. Use us, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.